Yeah, all right. <laughs> that was great, man. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. Uh, my name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And we're talking about Wizard of Oz a little bit this morning at the beginning because, uh, because today is Trinity Sunday. So obviously we have to talk about the Wizard of Oz. Um, Wizard of Oz came out, I believe, 1938. Uh, but but it's, um, I think most of you know this, right? It was based on a book by L. Frank Baum that actually came out right at the turn of the 20th century, 1900. And that makes the plot of the Wizard of Oz really interesting for our purposes here. Because, as you know, prob I'm assuming most of us are at least passingly familiar with the plot of the book, right? Dorothy, a young woman from Kansas, is accidentally transported to Oz in the, uh, in the, uh, by, the, by a tornado. And her journey home uh, can only be accomplished by visiting the mystical, mysterious Wizard of Oz, who lives in the Emerald City. And so she, she travels there following the Yellow Book Road. She uh, ends up gathering a bunch of companions along the way, like the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion. And when they meet Oz the Great and Powerful, it's this, it's this really fear-inducing moment. Uh, Oz appears before them as a disembodied head. There's all of the smoke and lightning. He speaks in this big, booming voice about how dare they come into his presence. And uh, they, are, they are terrified, particularly the cowardly lion, especially uh, fearful. But all of them are, are afraid. And uh, so, of course, you know, they have to go and, and kill the Wicked Witch of the West. And they, when they finally come back, uh, there's a lot of hemming and hawing, and that's when Toto, Dorothy's adorable little dog, uh, gets into some hijinks. He goes over and uh, notices that there's a curtain off to the side, and he pulls the curtain back to reveal uh, this wizened little old man bent over this machinery, and he's like, you know, pulling these levers and pushing buttons, and he sees them seeing him. And he speaks into a microphone, and we hear the booming voice of Oz the Great and Powerful say, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And we realize that Oz the Great and Powerful is a lie. That actually, it's not this disembodied, godlike figure. It's this uh, little old man who has been lying to people, tricking people through uh, special effects, essentially, right? Now, again... The film version that came out in 1938 uh, is less interesting than the fact that that book came out right at the turn of the 20th century. Because for a lot of people, particularly in the United States, uh, we had convinced ourselves that this was essentially the answer to religion. That for thousands of years, people had been uh, afraid of and impressed by some sort of you know, disembodied old man with a beard floating on a cloud, uh, threatening judgment and condemnation. But when you actually pulled back the curtain, it was just old men manipulating us with, uh, you know, with, with lies and special effects and things like that. By the end of the 19th century, particularly in the United States, we had convinced ourselves that we didn't much need God that humanity was capable of achieving everything ourselves, that, that we were on the cusp of a new golden age. And you go back and you read uh, religious writing, but also uh, just sort of general cultural writing that came out at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, and you see this. You see that, that we had convinced ourselves that we were on the cusp of a new golden age, that humanity, through our own hard work, through our own you know, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and, and working hard together, we're going to usher in utopia without the help of gods, but just by ourselves. And so, so we see that 
embodied in this book and that later began the movie, The Wizard of Oz, that when you pull back the curtain of reality, you don't find gods back there. You find little old men trying to keep, you know, trying to distract you. Now, what ends up happening in the early 20th century is not utopia, but the worst, most destructive, most devastating, most fatal war that the world has ever seen, what we called World War I. Now, I mean, then they didn't call it World War I because they were hoping it would be the last one, which of course it was not. After World War I, there was a crippling global depression caused again by people. And then that led into a second world war, even more deadly than the first, with concentration camps, with nuclear weapons being deployed for the first time in human history. Uh, And then that led into, of course, the Cold War, the endless wars in East Asia, uh, and then that all kind of culminated right after the turn of the 21st century with 9-11, right? And then then this endless war on terror. And so all of that conspired to crush our hopes that, uh, that, that we could do uh, this utopia thing on our own, right? Actually, what it seemed like humanity produced was death. And so again, it's, it, it shouldn't surprise us that in the 1900s, early 1900s, right around the time of World War I and just after, there was a writer named H.P. Lovecraft who started writing these books about these ancient elder gods like Cthulhu, which uh, if you see pictures of Cthulhu, he's like a, kind of like an octopus-headed tentacle monster thing. And this, this whole genre of horror is called cosmic horror now. Then no one had, had a name for it yet because they were just writing it, right? But the idea of cosmic horror is that what's truly at the heart of the universe is not a, be- a benevolent, loving God and also not a wizened old man behind a curtain playing tricks on us, but these vast, ancient, alien energies that, that are so far beyond human scope that we are like less than ants to them. And, and we cannot comprehend them, we cannot understand what they want, um, but they don't mean us, they don't mean good for us. And again, that's, that's what a lot of people felt after World War I, was that maybe the fundamental truth of the universe is not love and mercy, maybe it's death and suffering. And so, now, I wanna say, a little asterisk, H.P. Lovecraft, super problematic, okay? He was virulently racist, a lot of problems with his writings, but his writings have gone on to uh, inspire people like Stephen King. You can see a lot of H.P. Lovecraft and Stephen King. Jordan Peele, who did uh, both uh, Get Out and Us, and Nope is coming out soon. That, those are all very Lovecraftian kind of things. Any Stranger Things fans in here? I know we have a few, right? Stranger Things is very, very, very much a Lovecraft sort of cosmic horror story. So we see a lot of the the DNA that he created running through a lot of this. And, And all of it comes back to this question of when we pull back the curtain of reality, who's there? What's there, right? The Wizard of Oz and the, you know, the, the, the optimists of the early 20th century said, it's just people. And if we decide to use our powers for good instead of evil, we can accomplish miracles, okay? H.P. Lovecraft said it's these ancient, unknowable forces that mean us harm. Now, these, this is the quintessential question of religion, right? What is at the heart of reality? If we could truly pull back the curtain and see what's behind everything, what is it? So our Buddhist friends say there's nothing at the heart of reality, right? The, the, the core nature of reality is non-existence, and the goal, if you are a Buddhist, is to become one with that nothingness, 
right? Our Hindu friends kind of say the opposite of that. They say all of reality is this one essence. They call it the Brahma, right? Or you could call it God or whatever. But again, our, if you're a Hindu, your goal is to become one with, and you know, realize that, that the differences between Nathan and Cynthia and me are all illusory, right? Where those don't exist. And we need to realize that not only are we all one, but we are all one with this like cosmic nothing or this cosmic everything, right? Uh, our Muslim friends believe that God is the creator and that if we, uh, if we can pray and hope that God is merciful, then God will bring us into God's paradise. Our Mormon friends believe that God used to be a person like you and me. And if we will be good, faithful Mormons, then one day we can become gods and kind of start our own reality. Which sounds cool, but I'm not sure I would trust myself with the whole reality, right? <laughs> now, Again, I say that all these different faiths, all these different religions have different ways of answering this question, and that brings us to us, to Christians, right? What do Christians believe about the nature of reality? Who do we believe is behind the curtain? And obviously, the short answer to that is God, but Mormons believe in God, Muslims believe in God, you can even find Buddhists and Hindus who say they believe in God. Even Cthulhu is called a god. So, mm, that's not super helpful, right? That's why today we're going to talk about God as the Trinity, Okay, because the Trinity is actually the doctrine of Christianity that marks us out from every other faith. And I also know that the Trinity is super confusing, like people's eyes start to glaze over or roll back in their heads, or you pull out your phone and just scroll something, right, when we start talking about the Trinity. But the reason I love talking about the Trinity is because it is this, it is this mystery, this beautiful paradox that's at the heart of our faith that insists, here's what we're going to see today, God is love in a way that leads to freedom. So God is not codependent. God is not vengeful. God is not angry. God is love in a way that God invites us to experience that same love and freedom, not just inside of our own spirits, but in our relationships with one another and in the way that we encounter the world. So I'm excited about today, if you can't tell. I mean, I do love Wizard of Oz and Cosmic Horror, but I love the Trinity even more. And that's what we're really here to talk about and to celebrate today. So we're going to begin that with song. So if you're at home with us, worshiping online, or if you're here in the building, I want to invite you in everything we're doing today to be fully participating with us, to sing along, clap along, uh, dance along if you're feeling a little bit, bit loosey-goosey, uh, because today is a day where we are celebrating a God who loves us and who welcomes us. So I'm going to hand it over to Nathan and the worship team, and we're going to sing a song together. Would you all stand with me? Okay, so we are... We're actually kind of weirdly on an on a in-between Sunday. So uh, Pentecost officially ended our, our series last week where we celebrated the Holy Spirit coming to us. And next week, we're starting our sermon series on the movie Encanto, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. Um, yep, very excited. But today is what in the church calendar is called Trinity Sunday. So it's, it's officially the last Sunday of the church year before the church, the calendar goes in ordinary time. And it's, it's a chance for us to talk about what I said earlier, the most important doctrine in the church, which is the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, so so uh, I hope you'll join me today in this. It's, it's, the, the Trinity is, I think, a very important doctrine, but it's also commonly misunderstood. And it's, it is confusing, right? Like, we'll just announce that and right out, just admit it right out in the open. The Trinity is confusing. Because the Trinity says that God exists as one God in three persons. And so when you, if you're not familiar with church, or if you 
kind of have only vaguely heard people talk about faith, you, you can get the impression that Christians believe in three gods, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we talk about each, each person in the Trinity in that way. God is, God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. And so, like our Muslim friends, for instance, uh, think that Christians believe in three gods, that we're polytheists, you know, sort of like Hindus, uh, but we're not, right? Uh, we, we insist that all three of these persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are one God because we believe God is one. So then you can say, okay, so you're trying to make sense of this, right? Okay, so it's not Father, Son, and Spirit, so it's not three gods, it's one God. So maybe, does that mean it's like, you know, I am a pastor, and I'm also a husband, and I'm also a friend, right? Is it like sometimes God does father stuff, and sometimes God does son stuff, and sometimes God does spirit stuff, but it's like three different hats that one guy is wearing. And that's also not true, right? That's a, that's a belief called modalism, where God has different modes that God can be in, like I'm in father mode right now, or I'm in son mode right now. And that's a, that's a heresy that the early church condemned. And what that means is that the church said, no, this is not a good way to talk about God, okay? And we're going to talk about why in a little bit. That, that Father, Son, and Spirit are three distinct and different persons who are nevertheless one God. And if you're starting to say, my head hurts, this is confusing, why did I come to church today? Don't worry, it's okay, right? You are far from alone. This is why the Trinity is so confusing and why it's difficult for us to understand. So I'm going to give you some language that I hope will ease your pain a little bit, right? The Trinity is a mystery, okay? And what we mean by that is not that the Trinity is a puzzle to solve, right? It's not a detective story that if we got all the pieces and figured them out in the right way, we would have it solved, you can't, let me, let me put it another way. You cannot be smart enough or educated enough to understand the Trinity. Okay, it's a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery. But that's good news. It's a paradox. Okay, three cannot be one and one cannot be three, right? If you were in math class and you wrote three equals one, you'd get an F, right? Or if you did one plus one plus one equals one, right? F, right? Those are failing math problems, which is why we say the Trinity is a mystery, right? It's not a puzzle to solve. It's a paradox. Three cannot be one, and one cannot be three, and yet what we see in the scriptures is that this is true, okay? So I want to I read with you uh, a passage from Matthew. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with you to Matthew 28, um, if you grab one of the Bibles out of the back, Matthew 28 is on page 598, and if you don't own a Bible, please keep that. Consider that a gift from us. We would love for you to, to take that. Um, but as you're turning to Matthew 28, this is the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. So Jesus has already, you know, the, he, was, he was born, obviously lived his life, did all of his teaching, went to Jerusalem, was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And now Matthew 28 is the very end. It's when, it's when he is giving his last words to his disciples. Uh, this, is the, this is famously in the church called the Great Commission, and it's when Jesus is sending the disciples into the world. So I want you to listen to what he says, and I want you to pay attention to the language that he uses, because he, he uses one of the earliest formulations of Trinitarian language that we have in the Bible. So here's what he says, beginning in verse 19. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. We talked about that in this series, right? That some of the disciples had a really hard time understanding what it meant that Jesus was back from the dead and how that could be. So we see that even in Matthew, right? Now, Jesus came and told his disciples, 
I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Okay, so did you catch that Trinitarian language in there, right? Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples, just like I made you disciples of me. Now you're going to go and make disciples, and you're going to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the language that tripped up the early church, because you're going to remember, they were all Jewish. And in Judaism, God is one. That's the prayer they pray every morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, right? So they knew God the Father, they were fine with that. But then Jesus went around saying that he was God. And they were like, well, how, how can you be God if the Father is God, right? And that was hard for them. That was confusing. And it got more confusing when Jesus was raised from the dead. Because remember, Jesus, okay, so, you know, like in superhero movies, sometimes spoilers for almost all superhero movies, the superhero like dies in the middle of it. And you know that they're not really dead because, like, the movie's called whatever that superhero's name is, so you know they're going to come back. And, like, sure enough, by the end of the movie, they come back, and you cheer, and then they win. Like, sometimes that's how we treat the cross, right? That, like, Jesus was out to, you know, save the day, and then he sort of, like, got killed incidentally, but then he came back at the end, and it was okay. But remember that when Jesus, when Jesus was alive on earth, he was challenging both the Roman authorities— the, the imperial occupying colonial authorities, and his own people, the religious authorities, saying the way that you are living is false. The way that you are living does not lead to life. You are not following the way of God. God, God is this peacemaking, uh, loving, lifting up the vulnerable, protecting the defenseless, caring for the widow and orphan kind of holiness. And that's why they killed him. They killed him because he took a stand against the powers and the principality of his day, and they struck him down. And so when God raised him from the dead, it wasn't just a, hey, now you can get back to what you were doing. It was a, it was a seal. It was a stamp of approval. God saying, yes, I am raising him from the dead because he is right and true and holy. So Jesus claiming to be God, well, that was proved when God raised him from the dead. So you have these, you have these Jewish disciples saying, we know that God the Father is, the one, is one, but now we also know Jesus is God. Okay, that's confusing. And then after Jesus left and we experienced Pentecost, so we just talked about, you know, God, them receiving the Holy Spirit, they, they experienced the Spirit as, again, God. So they went from being real comfortable with God is God, God is one, to now there are three different beings that we're experiencing as God, and they couldn't you know, again, there's no equal sign that makes that okay, right? There's no way to just say, oh yeah, this, we solved the math problem, right? We got the proof and everything's fine now. Now for us, this is a huge brain buster, right? Because it's called a paradox. If you're a Back to the Future fan, it's the thing that made Doc Brown go, great Scott! Yeah, great Scott is the paradox. Marty! Um, you know, that's... There we go, yeah, it's heavy. Heavy, there's that word again. Something happened to gravity in the future? Um, okay, sorry, that's the last Christopher Lloyd impression I'll do today. Um, <laughs> uh, paradoxes are bad for Westerners, right? We think that when something contradicts itself, it is evidence that it is false, right? That's why, again, in math, we love proofs. I don't love proofs because I can never get them right. I would always create paradoxes on my math proofs, and you can tell that because of the Fs at the top of them. Right? So, 
But in Eastern thought, which again, remember, Judaism and Christianity are, are originally Eastern religions. They come from the Middle East. Paradox proves truth. Because paradox says, this is too big for your brain. This is beyond the scope of your understanding. Which I think is good when we're talking about God, right? Do you want to worship someone that you are smarter than? Do you want to worship someone that you feel like you have fully figured out and explained? I hope not, right? I hope we would want to look at someone who created all things that are and who calls us to life and who is able to raise from that. I hope we would want that person to be a little bit beyond us. And for Easterners, that's what paradox points to. It's a mystery that invites us into the unexplainable, not to solve it, but to experience it, right? It's not something we need to understand. It's something we need to experience. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go into the world and I want you to make disciples and I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus is not trying to solve the mystery of the Trinity for his disciples. He is saying, in the same way I have invited you to experience life, now I want you to go into the world and I want you to invite them to experience this paradox, this mystery, this three-in-oneness that is at the heart of reality. And you don't have to understand it. Actually, it's probably better that you can't understand it because if you could understand it, well, then that makes you above God in some way, right? I know that's a lot. And so I want to move us back into worship into singing, because I want, us to, I want us to sit, before we move forward in trying to understand the Trinity, I want us to just celebrate this idea that when we say the word Trinity, when we talk about Trinity, what we're saying is that God invites us to experience the inner life of God. Trinity is the best way we have to express the inexpressible. It's the best way we have to make God approachable and, and imminent. And so it's, it's an in, the word Trinity is an invitation in the same way that Jesus used it in the Great Commission. Enter into the interior life of God. Come close to the one who is the creator of the universe. Approach the unapproachable. Experience uh, the one who is beyond us. So I hand it back over to the worship team. Would you again stand with me as we just take a moment to sing and to celebrate this God who is near to us and who loves us and who invites us in. Um, that's a great song to lead into where we're going next. Um, because I want to talk about, uh, you know, I, I think it's still a gap or a jump, right, from saying that God is Trinity, and that, that Trinity is an invitation into the heart of God, and then, also, and then saying that God is love, right? The, the, those, are, those two don't necessarily, necessarily go together. So uh, turn with me over to Hosea uh, chapter 11. Um, do we have a page number for that one? Did I forget to do that? That's fine. Okay. It's somewhere in the Old Testament. Um, sorry about that. Uh, so, so Hosea is one of the prophets, and, and Hosea is... is prophesying, he's speaking to the nation of Israel at a time when 
uh, Israel is really not faithful at all to God. Uh, they are not keeping the covenant that they swore. Uh, they're not caring for the most vulnerable among them. They're not living lives of holiness. And what I want you to notice here is that what we see in Hosea is not a God whose words are filled with judgment and condemnation. Because I think, again, that's the, that's the stereotype that a lot of times we make about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. So they're somehow different, right? That the God of the Old Testament was grumpy and judgy and smitey, and that the God of the New Testament was kind and good and, and warm and cuddly, you know, whatever. And you see, I think Hosea is a great place where you see that that is not, in fact, the case. Uh, that, that actually what, what always, always, always has uh, motivated uh, God is love for God's people. So you see this in Hosea chapter 11, uh, where the prophet is speaking on behalf of God to the people. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. Beginning in verse 1, God says, When Israel was a child... I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. But the more I called to him, the farther he moved from me, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand. But he doesn't even know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with my ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck, and I myself stooped to feed him. Okay? Now you can hear that, right? You can hear that in this passage, God is not happy with where Israel is, right? God is saying they've abandoned me, they ignore me, they, they don't care that I liberated them from Egypt, that I have cared for them, that I helped them learn how to be a nation. They don't care about any of that. But do you hear judgment? Do you hear condemnation? Do you hear smitiness? I don't. I hear grief. I hear God lamenting. And that's what you see if you read the whole book of Hosea. That's what you see. There's a, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is elsewhere in Hosea where God is lamenting again and God says that God wants to take Israel back into the wilderness to woo them again. Okay, it's, it's, it's a love, it's, it's a declaration of love. Okay? Now, some of you might be thinking, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So what you're saying is that God loves Israel, and Israel keeps ignoring God, turning their back on God, denying the covenant, and no matter what, God keeps loving them. Isn't that actually super unhealthy? Like if we saw, if we saw a human relationship that looked like that, right? Where one partner was constantly unfaithful and cruel and dismissive, and the other person was like, it's okay, baby, I'll take you back, I don't care. Like we'd be like, mm, that's pretty messed up, actually, right? We call that codependent. Is God codependent? Should God get some therapy? Is that what we're saying? This is where the doctrine of the Trinity is super important, okay? Because when we say that God is love, uh, we don't have to guess at what that word means because love, you know, love can mean a lot of stuff, right? We love our partners or our spouses. We love our kids, but we also love sports teams or barbecue or uh, 100-degree weather. Maybe one of us in here might. I don't know, whatever. Uh, we use the word love to mean a lot of different stuff. And so when we say God is love, it's worth saying, well, what do we mean? In John's gospel, Jesus defines it for us. Jesus says, greater love has no one than laying down their life for their friends. Okay, so we have right there, when Jesus is talking about love, Jesus means giving yourself for the good of the other person. This the self-sacrifice, the self-emptying. 
So when we say that God is love, that the Trinity is love, that's what we mean, that God is, God is fundamentally a being who is most fully God's self when God is giving for the good of someone else. So if God is one and not three, then God needs creation because God can't be fully God unless God is giving, right? Because that's who God is. God is love. God is a giver. And you can't, you can't give without a recipient, right? If I'm giving without a recipient, I'm just littering, right? Giving requires a receiver. And so if God is only one, God needs creation. God needs someone to give to in order to be fully God, which would be codependent, right? God, God needs you to receive the gifts that God is giving or else God can't be God. And so that's where you get the needy, clingy deity that can get judgy and smitey and def, you know, defensive and all that kind of stuff. But if God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, what we have, uh, theologians call it a dance, that we have these three beings who inside of themselves are completely, fully self-contained. And the Father can give to the Son and to the Spirit, and the Spirit can give to the Son and to the Father, and the Son can give to the Spirit and to the Father, and they can all receive from each other, and they don't need you. They don't need me. They don't need any of us. Which is actually good news, because if they don't need us, then it means they can choose us. God didn't have to create so that God had something to give to. God chose to create out of God's own freedom because God loves to give so much that God wanted to create more to give to. And then God loved creating so much that God created new beings in God's own image, humans, so that we could experience the same joy in giving that God experiences. Not because God needed us, not because God is somehow codependent, right? But because out of God's overflowing, abundant love and joy, God created us to then invite us into the interior life of the Trinity, to invite us into the heart of that mystery, that paradox, not to understand, but to experience. So we are most like God when we give like God does. And when we receive God's invitation, when we say yes to Jesus and accept his invitation into the mystery of the Trinity, we are transformed, we are changed, we are made into what we were created to be, and we are liberated, we're set free. I can now engage in a relationship with you without need because... I'm one with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We talked about that a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit makes us one the way God is one. And so that liberates us in our relationships, in our romantic relationships. It liberates us to love with freedom, to relate not out of need, but out of joy and abundance. It frees us in our relationships with our neighbors, right? Uh, not to have to respond uh, eye for an eye. Right? But it, it frees us to turn the other cheek and to love the people who otherwise we might label as our enemies because God has invited us into the interior life of the Trinity. So this is why I say the Trinity is my favorite doctrine. Not only does it insist that the core fundamental truth of the universe is not darkness, is not nothingness, uh, it's love. 
It's this self-giving, world-changing, abundant, joyous love. But also, because the Trinity has a real practical uh, effect on us, when we experience the joy of the Trinity, it transforms how we live in the world. It transforms how we relate in the world. The deeper into the mystery of God's love that we go, the more we are freed to love the world the way God loves the world. And friends, that's what our world needs right now. So as we are continuing to worship, we're going to approach the, the table today. And I want to invite you to approach with a sense of freedom. What Jesus invites you to when Jesus invites you to the table is a chance to step deeper into the mystery of the Trinity. To experience the God who gave you everything, including his own life, so that you could be set free to love the world the way he loves the world. So that you could become like him, bear his image to the world. Before we come to the table, uh, I'm going to lead you in a prayer of examine. I'm going to ask you some questions and give you some space to reflect prayerfully on them. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to just, uh, and again, if you can do that by yourself if you prefer to pray silently or if you're here with, uh, with someone that you trust or that you care about and you want to discuss, that's fine too. These, these questions are meant to be prayers that you, that you contemplate with, with Jesus. And then I'll pray for all of us together and then we'll receive communion together. So here's the first question I want you to consider. When in the last week have I made it a point to receive God's love for me? Think about the week that brought you here. Was there a time that I made a point to make sure that I was receiving God's love for me? Now, what has kept me from receiving God's love in this last week? And finally, how can I be intentional about receiving God's love this week?
And for this last question, I want to flip out and think about how you can image God's love. So who is God inviting me to love this week? together. God, you have gathered us here uh, by your Holy Spirit that we might experience the mystery at the heart of creation. Uh, We confess that we don't understand uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, and that often can frustrate us, it can paralyze us, it can lead us to just wave our hands and dismiss it and and pretend it's not important. But you have shown us today through your scriptures that that this is, this is how you have chosen to invite us into your interior world. This is how you have chosen to help us to understand what it means to say that we are made in your image and that you call us to love the world the way you love the world. Thank you for showing us these things and thank you more than that for inviting us into the mystery of your inner life and for uh, making it possible for us to approach through your own death on the cross. We approach your table now and we bring with us uh, our hopes and our desire to be changed, our desire to love better, our desire to be loved well, and we offer them to you. And in exchange, we receive these elements, and we pray that in these moments they would be a spiritual food, that we might receive your grace and might know what it means to be loved by the one who created and calls us. We offer these prayers now and we approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared a meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he broke bread. He gave it to them and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we announce Jesus' death until he returns. Thank you for that. Now as you're going, I wanted to give you a heads up about what our summer series is going to be. Uh, summer's always the time when we like to get weird and have a little bit of fun. So I want to show you the slide for the summer series. It is the, as promised, long-coming long uh, uh, Encanto sermon series. So this is La Familia Madrigal's uh, handy-dandy guide to spiritual transformation. So what we are going to be doing is working through the different characters in Encanto and uh, talking about how they actually are metaphors for the possibility of spiritual transformation. So we're going to be looking at each of them, what is keeping them from growing spiritually, and then what are some of the keys that Scripture gives us to unlock that. So uh, next week is going to be an introductory week. If you have not seen Encanto, uh, let me know. We, you know, I'm always down for a watch party, so uh, we, can, we can watch that, uh, have a little sing-along. Um, yeah, okay, I'm getting a yes on the sing-along. All right, so uh, really excited about this. If you haven't seen the movie, it's really delightful. It is bursting with spiritual themes and spiritual ideas and so we're going to, we're going to do that. Uh, I do want to temper your expectations. We're not going to be showing video clips because last time we tried that, we got pulled off YouTube. So uh, it's like copyrighted or something, whatever, right? So, uh, <laughs> um, and two, I will say, if you have not seen Encanto and you just don't want to for whatever reason, that's fine, no judgment. Um, but you will not have to have seen the movie to, to enjoy the sermon series. Though, uh, if you have seen and love Encanto, hopefully that will uh, pique your excitement. But the goal of this series 
is spiritual growth and spiritual transformation. We want to be able to identify what the barriers in our own lives are to growing uh, and becoming more like Jesus. And so we're gonna, we're gonna find a fun way to do that by looking at the characters in Encanto. So uh, we're really excited about it. The preaching team has been having a ball with it. So uh, looking forward to, to going on that journey this summer with you as well. So if you would all stand, I want to dismiss us this morning with, with a blessing. Uh, Catalyst, as you are going today, I want to assure you that you go into a world where the fundamental truth of reality is not darkness, is not competition, is not hatred or evil. It is love. And so you can go confident that the God of love, the God who is Trinity, has gone before you and is coming along beside you and is following behind you to keep you and to call you to do good work in the world that God has prepared for you to do. So you can walk in faith knowing that God has you. Go in the grace and peace of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.